This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the ways in which Christians are being rallied to see themselves as the true victimized minority in America, and how this contributes to the stoking of right-wing nationalism. Clips today come from The Intercept, Boom Lawyered, The Tom Hartman Program, The Majority Report, and This Way Out. I'm here to warn you about a growing threat to the laws and values of the United States from a group of religious extremists and fanatics. No, I'm not referring to so-called jihadists or Islamists or to creeping Sharia. I'm referring to what I like to call the Christian Taliban, those Bible-thumping fundamentalists who are bent on theocratizing the US government. There's the Attorney General of the United States, Mullah Jeff Sessions, who wants Sharia law, but of the biblical variety. Asked last week how the Trump administration could justify separating migrant kids from their parents at the border, Sessions said, I would cite you to the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans uh, 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained the government for his purposes. Yeah, forget all the verses in the Bible that talk of love and compassion towards the less fortunate. No, obey the law according to Romans 13. The same verses of the Bible, incidentally, that were used to justify slavery. But that didn't stop White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders from coming out explicitly in favor of theocracy. It is very biblical to enforce the law. Uh, That is actually repeated a number of times throughout the Bible. By the way, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is the daughter of Mullah Mike Huckabee, who once called for God's law to be placed above U.S. law. And that's what we need to do is to amend the Constitution so it's in God's standards rather than try to change God's standards so it lines up with some contemporary view of how we treat each other and how we treat the family. There's also Mullah Ted Cruz, whose victory speech at the 2016 Iowa caucuses began with... Let me first of all say, to God be the glory. That's basically Christian for... Imagine the reaction if a Muslim candidate for high office began his victory speech with... I'm just saying. Cruz has also said he's a Christian first and an American second. Can you imagine if, say, Congressman Keith Ellison said he was a Muslim first and an American second. Then there's Muller Mike Pence. I'm a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. He's tried to bring his extreme religious views into the science classrooms of America. Let us demand that educators around America teach evolution not as fact, but as theory. While governor of Indiana, Pence brought in a quote-unquote religious liberty bill, which basically legalized discrimination against a vulnerable LGBTQ minority. And he literally signed that bill, surrounded by these folks. Hmm. Look, as in the Middle East, to really politicize religion, you need a bunch of politicized clerics. Caliph Donald Trump can call on some of America's finest to make the case for Christian supremacism and to make the case for him, the divine case for an irreligious, thrice-married adulterer and former casino owner. There's Muller Franklin Graham, who says the hand of God elected Trump. There's Muller Robert Jeffress, who says God gave Trump the authority to take out Kim Jong-un. There's Muller Jim Baker, who says we have to obey Trump because God had him elected. If that isn't the language of theocracy, of zealotry, 
then what is? And for those of you moderate Christians who are tearing your hair out at the sight of these Christian extremists, distorting your precious faith to score political points and advance a narrow, intolerant, hate-filled agenda, all in the name of God and with the aid of scripture, well, let me say on behalf of all your Muslim friends and neighbors, welcome to our world. So Jessica, where do we begin? Can you just tell us a little bit about what this case is all about? Sure. We begin with the fact that this case is a trap. It's a trap. Flat out a trap. It's a tarp. (laughs) (laughs) Insert your Star Wars tip right there. Unlike a lot of the trans cases that we are used to that we see a trans student or an employee who's suing to have their rights enforced, this case involves cisgender students challenging their school's trans-inclusive policy. And they're arguing that by allowing trans students to use bathrooms that correspond with their gender identity, the school districts are violating their, the cisgender students' privacy rights. I fr- the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that there is a black student who is the face of this lawsuit. A black woman, yeah. a black female high school student is the face of this lawsuit. And that just strikes me as really disgusting and icky because in my view, they're sort of not particularly subtly drawing mm-hmm. a straight line from the civil rights movement to some fantasy that Christians have, that evangelical Christians have in particular, that they are being per- persecuted in some way by being forced to acknowledge trans people as human. Right, absolutely. And, you know, Alliance Defending Freedom is involved in this lawsuit, so we have every reason to think that that strategy is, you know, on on purpose. And also because it continues this theme that the right has, that the real discrimination that is happening out there is against Christians and against Christian students. And here, the real harm is that cisgender students um, can't deal with trans students and that they have this emotional harm as a result of having to um, exist in a place where trans students have the ability to use restrooms that correspond with their identity. It's not even like somebody has had an, a moment where that ex- space has, has existed. They're just the policy itself is on its face, just so terrible in on its existence. They just can't. That's their petition, basically. We just can't. And what's really disturbing about it is that, frankly, it's not cisgender students that are at risk when it comes to discrimination, when it comes to bullying in high school, right? I mean, 40% of homeless youth, for example, are LGBT, and that's according to a UCLA law study that was conducted in 2012, and I can't imagine it's gotten any better in the last seven years. In addition, the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network published a 2013 report which found that 55% of LGBT youth feel unsafe at school because of their sexual orientation and 37% feel unsafe because of their gender expression. 74% of LGBT youth have been verbally harassed because of their sexual orientation and 55% have been verbally harassed because of their gender expression. I mean, these sorts of statistics demonstrate that these sorts of lawsuits further demonize trans students when we're already living in a world where it's very difficult to be a trans student and to be in high school and to be trying to figure out who you are and where you fit in the world while people are screaming at you that you're some kind of weirdo or that you're some sort of deviant. I mean, 
this sort of reverse discrimination against cis students is really disgusting. It is. And it's building off real harm the Trump administration has caused trans students, right? They rolled back those guidance clarifying that trans students have rights in school like the one, like the policy that's being challenged here. And even this week, Betsy DeVos testified before Congress that when they were considering rolling back those, that guidance, they had that evidence of of kids getting bullied in school, of the fact that it is not safe for LGBTQ and particularly trans students in so many spaces. And she said, yeah, we knew about it. We just didn't really care effectively. And that's why this case has me so riled up because, you know, I mean, the reverse discrimination stuff is just bullshit. But there's real harm to real people on the line here. And, you know, the Trump administration has done its part. And, you know, we have Alliance Defending Freedom taking up this this wing of it. And really, SCOTUS could make this all permanent. So why don't we talk about why this case matters? We alluded to it, but we should really dig into it. Essentially, the religious right is, again, again, looking for ways to legally sanction discrimination. And this case is just their latest vehicle to do so. And we obviously know this isn't going to stop with trans students, right? I mean, how long until they try to get conversion therapy methods brought into counseling spaces, for example? Oh, I mean, I think they're probably working on it, honestly. Exactly. Mike Pence loves him some conversion therapy. Aside from, you know, these cases, Trinity Lutheran and Masterpiece Cake Shop, who else can we blame? What else can we blame for this? I mean, absolutely Alliance Defending Freedom. Um, mm-hmm. They are on a mission here. And I mean, you know, we are, we've done um, over 50 episodes of this podcast right now, Amani, right? Woo! And we have covered Trinity Lutheran. We've covered Masterpiece Cake Shop. We've covered Alliance Defending Freedom because they are on this mission and they are building doctrine. And this is how that happens. We are seeing this evolution. Um, and yeah, you know, I mean, it, they were able to get the court to bite on the idea that it's reverse discrimination um, in Trinity Lutheran to keep uh, religious organizations out of certain pockets of money. They were able to get the court to bite on the idea that it was reverse discrimination in Masterpiece Cake Shop to try and enforce anti-discrimination laws, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it looks like they're going to try and get the court to bite on it again here. ADF is trying to make this and a lot of things about discrimination against Christians. Mm -hmm. They're trying to make it also about the privacy rights of these vulnerable teens undergoing a sexual awakening. Oh, can we talk about that for a minute, though? Can we talk about the fact that there are lesbian students and there are gay students. So if you're talking about being concerned about people of the quote-unquote opposite sex seeing your nether regions... Like, what about people, what about people of the same sex who are attracted to other people of the same sex? Are yeah. we, I mean, is that going to be the next step? Are we yeah. going to start, we're going to start saying, okay, we have straight cisgender locker rooms for you. And mm-hmm. then we have lesbian locker rooms for you. And we have gay locker rooms for you. And then we've got trans. I mean, it's how yeah. far down this road are we going to go? I mean, honestly, I think ADF would be totally cool with separate facilities for queer kids. I mean, I can absolutely see them making some kind of, you know, privacy dignity argument um, that straight kids are, you know, hurt by having to exist in the same space as, you know, um, queer kids. Or I'm surprised, you know, that they haven't yet tested the waters of, you know, kids that come from uh, same-sex couple families because that is the basic basis of their uh, religious objections in the courts, right? That this is, it's, we don't, I mean, you know, they're trying to dress it up as we don't really hate gay people, but we just object to their lifestyle. And there's just no separating that, right? There is no separating that. And 
I just want to make sure that we note that this is all nonsense. And the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled in a case out of Wisconsin that it's nonsense. And here's what that court said. This about this. This is what that court said about. I think it was Kenosha School District in in Wisconsin mm-hmm. that was basically litigating a similar case. And in that case, the Seventh Circuit said this policy does nothing to protect the privacy rights of each individual student vis a vis students who share similar anatomy, and it ignores the practical reality of how Ash Ash was the plaintiff in the Kenosha case in Wisconsin. It ignores the practical reality of how Ash, a transgender boy, uses the bathroom by entering a stall and closing the door. God, thank you. Like, right? <laughs> like, ding, 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 ding. It's, it's absurd. But the current went on to say, a transgender student's presence in the restroom provides no more of a risk to other students' privacy rights than the presence of an overly curious student of the same biological sex who decides to sneak glances at his or her classmates performing their bodily functions. Yep. And so this goes back to what I was just saying, you know, they do they want separate bathrooms for homosexual kids? Do they want separate back- bathrooms just for heterosexual Christians? Do they yeah. want Christians to have their own bathroom so that they can go in and I guess feel safe that there are no Christians in the world that are homosexual or lesbian or trans or gender non-binary. I mean, this, it's a very narrow view, not only of sexuality, but of Christianity. It really is. And again, you know, entirely erases the actual harm trans and LGBTQ students face every day in school. Mm-hmm. Like the actual harm that they are faced versus a pearl clutch. Right. And it's just, it drives me bonkers. The question, I guess, for the hour is, is Mike Pence a Christian? How, how, for that matter, is Billy Graham Jr. or Franklin Graham, excuse me, a, a Christian? Is Jerry Falwell Jr. a Christian? You know, I look at their behavior. By their works, they shall be known, remember? I look at that behavior and I have to say, you know, well, one of the things about being a Christian is not judging other people, but that said, I can't categorically say that they're not Christians, but I can say that it sure doesn't look like they're followers of Jesus, at least, you know, in that behavior, which, which raises like some interesting issues about all kinds of stuff, frankly, you know, the, the religion in the public square, we've got a, uh, there's this right wing movement, this project blitz that's going on right now as we speak where fundamentalist Christians have come up with these uh, twin lies, these two lies that they are literally putting into legislation in state after state after state. The most recent was uh, Texas's uh, Senate Bill 17, anti-gay legislation. It basically says uh, not just stores can discriminate, but anybody who has a license, a pharmacist, a doctor, a lawyer, anybody with a license, can discriminate against gay people or, or any, anybody on that spectrum, anybody who's not just totally, you know, cisgendered, if they hold, quote, a sincerely held religious belief. Get that? The two lies that these guys are promoting are, number one, and they're using David Talbot to do this, 
uh, who's a guy who literally makes up quotes from people like Thomas Jefferson to say that America is a Christian nation. He's a He's a, a hustler, a phony baloney hustler. He used to be on the Glenn Beck show all the time. Totally discredited. The first lie is that America was founded in Christianity, that America is a Christian nation. That is, that is an egregious lie. And then the second lie is that the fundamental, the, the foundational core concept of Christianity is bigotry, is discriminating against people, is hating people. Hating people because of their sexuality, hating pe- people because of their gender, hating people because of their or because of their gender identity, hating people because of their religion, and this is all these guys have, right? This is all the Republican Party has. This is why a video of Ilan Omar and 9/11 is pinned at the top of of Donald Trump's Twitter feed, because all they have is bigotry. And they're calling it Christianity. And they're, and they're running on this. Mike Pence is running on this. There, USA Today published a story on April 3rd titled, Copy, Paste, Legislate. And what they did is they looked from the period of 2010 to 2018, they looked at 10,000 pieces of legislation that were introduced in every single state. This two-year joint investigation between the Center for Public Integrity and the Arizona Republic newspapers. And what they found was that 4,300 of those 10,000 bills were actually written by corporations. And another 4,012 of them were written by conservative groups, and most of the conservative groups were religious, or at least claimed religion in order to get a tax exemption. But really, they were bigot laws. They were, they were laws that, that sought to, to minimize the rights and privileges in our society of people that the Christians don't like. Chris, uh, Rachel Lacer, the president of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, told Salon, Project Blitz, this is this Project Blitz, this is this thing that all these right-wing millionaires, the, you know, the Jerry Falwell Jr. and Franklin Graham and all these other guys, I don't know specifically if those two are involved, I'd be astonished if they weren't, but it's this, this major multi-state project to put religion into our law. One of the, you know, one of the pieces is, is having religion, having the Christian history of America taught in our elementary schools. All right, we're going to teach lies in our schools. And then institutionalizing laws that allow pharmacists to, to say, you know, no, I'm sorry, I can't fill your prescription for birth control pills. It violates my religion. Or doctors saying, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't treat you, uh, your broken leg, because you're gay, and that violates my religion. It's bigotry. And they're calling this Christianity. And it's not Christianity, at least as I know it. I mean, can, do you, can you figure out any way to rationalize this? I mean, who would, who would Jesus discriminate against? Right? To the best of my knowledge, the only people in his life he ever got pissed off at were the money changers in the temple, the businessmen who were trying to make money off religion, the people who were hustling you know, you know, little animals to sacrifice in exchange for cash. I mean, you know, they were like the televangelists of their day. It was the Pat Robertsons 
that Jesus was seriously PO'd with. And then you look at this story, the plot against America inside the Christian rights program to remodel America. Um, Clarkson tells Salon, the authors of the Project Blitz playbook are the savvy purveyors of dominionism, which is chillingly akin to a handmaiden's tale. They live in an imminent theocratic vision. In other words, they believe that, that the country needs to be run by God. But because God doesn't just like show up on television, they're the ones who are going to tell us what God wants. The first tier of Project Blitz is to import the, uh, the Christian nationalist worldview into public schools. Uh, the second tier aims to make government increasingly a partner in Christianizing America. And the third tier contain, contain, contains these specific proposed laws to, quote, protect religious beliefs and practices that are really are just pro-bigotry laws. In fact, they say specifically to denigrate the LGBTQ community and to defend and advance the right to discriminate. Period. Very, sim- very straightforward. And they've come up with this, 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 this set of lies, this, this whole false narrative. With that false identity in place, Christian nationals rationalize the freedom to discriminate as a fundamental right. This, for example, is from this law in Texas that I was telling you about, Section 2. Marriage should be recognized as a union of one man and one woman. Okay, no more gay marriage. Number two, sexual relations are properly reserved to such a marriage. You can't have sex with somebody if you're not A, married, and B, straight. Or maybe we should reverse those. And then C, man and woman refer to an individual's immutable biological sex as objectively determined by anatomy and genetics at time of birth. And they're calling this the Marriage Tolerance Act. Speaking of safe spaces, um, the man who, um, whose biographer we had on this program, right? Uh, who did a biography of Mike Pence? Mm-hmm. Called him the most powerful theocrat in the history of the United States in terms of uh, political position. Uh, Mike Pence was at Liberty University, basically telling uh, the students there that Donald Trump a deeply religious and moral man is, um, is protecting them and also prepare to go out and as you go into the profane world where people think that, um, that women should have sovereignty over their own bodies and sovereignty over their own lives, where people think that People's sexual orientation should not make them second-class citizens. Where people think that people who feel themselves to uh, want to identify as a different gender are in somehow infringing upon God's will that will implicate them 
be prepared to be shunned and metaphorically burned at the stake, or in other words, to have people disagree with you. But my message to all of you in the class of 2019 is derives of the moment that we're living in today. You know, throughout most of American history, it's been pretty easy to call yourself Christian. Didn't even occur to people that you might be shunned or ridiculed for defending the teachings of the Bible. But things are different now. Some of the loudest voices for tolerance today have little tolerance for traditional Christian beliefs. So as you go about your daily life, just be ready. Because you're going to be asked not just to tolerate things that violate your faith, you're going to be asked to endorse them. You're going to be asked to bow down to the idols of the popular culture. So you need to prepare your minds for action, men and women. You need to show that we can love God and love our neighbor at the same time through words and deeds. Yeah, a lot of people probably wonder, like, what's he talking about? Um, <clears throat> this notion of Christian oppression in this country is uh, stunning. And the idea that if you are licensed by the state to provide medical care, let's say, or prescription drugs, and your ability to do so is a function of licensing by the state and reliant upon all the laws that are set up by the state to ensure that the medicine you're delivering um, is safe and whatnot. The idea that saying you can't pick and choose who you provide that medical care to based upon who you think are living a sinful life as if that is some form of oppression to Christians. You have a choice. Don't go into that profession. This is, uh, this is the, the, the battle that he is trying to gear them up for. Well, I think he's speaking of the social sphere as well, because it is true that there are certain beliefs that certain strands of Christianity have interpreted to be the Christian beliefs that are no longer acceptable in certain places in polite society, like hating people just for being gay or thinking that trans people are an abomination or whatever. And that's a good thing. Well, I mean, the fact is, is that you can, there is no, there is no law that says that you can't have those feelings. If that's what your religion teaches you, and even if you want to slice it as like hate the sin and not the sinner, but you don't have the right in civil society to impose that morality on the rest of us. And the morality of acceptance is not a reality. It is simply the, the rights that every citizen has to have housing, the same access to housing, same access to uh, accommodations and food and jobs and whatnot. And, and, and frankly, we don't even have uh, enough protections in that regard. So if you want to live in a gated community, barter your uh, services to your neighbor, that is certainly up to you. 
But if you want to engage in uh, commerce and whatnot in, uh, in civil society, then you have to accept that your morality does not get to dictate who gets rights and who doesn't. Even though, frankly, to a certain extent, we still have that problem. But I don't know. I mean, you could have said those same words uh, when they started to roll back uh, anti-miscegenation laws. Lesbian freelance journalist Lyra McKee left her Belfast, Northern Ireland home in late May of 2017, bound for the U.S. with a delegation from the U.K. in search of American values. The experience the writer for such publications as BuzzFeed, The Atlantic, and MediaGazer brought back became the basis for her TEDx Women Talk in Stormont later that year. McKee had learned something about the power of engaging people on a personal level, particularly religious people, to change attitudes about LGBTQ issues. For me, the hardest part of the trip was when we got to Orlando and they told us we were going to be visiting a mosque. Now you ask yourself, why would I find it hard to visit a mosque? Well, for those of you who don't have gaydar, I'm gay. And don't worry, you can laugh, it's okay. And I hated myself for much of my life because of what religion taught me about people like me. And when I stopped hating myself, I started hating religion. But I was intrigued by this mosque because it was in Orlando, and a year to the week that we were in Orlando, 49 gay people were slaughtered, sorry, 49 people were slaughtered in a gay nightclub called Pulse. And this mosque had led the response to that tragedy and had condemned it. And I was intrigued by that. This was at a time when Christian churches in Orlando were refusing to bury some of the dead because they were gay. So to have a church come out and our mosque come out and condemn this was a big deal. One of the victims of Pulse that always struck with me was Brenda Marquez McCool. She was a woman who was out with her gay son that night in Pulse supporting him. And when the gunman unleashed his bullets, she threw herself in front of her son, and he survived, but she didn't. So I decided that I would go into this mosque with an open mind. And I did, and we met with this lovely man called Bassam, who was one of the leaders in the mosque. And we talked about everything, and eventually Bassam and I had a conversation about LGBT rights and what Muslims think of gay people, and difficult, thorny subject. But we had a really pleasant conversation but neither of us knew what was about to happen next. There was a young man on our trip, who I'll call Mahmoud, a young Muslim man, and he was listening to the exchange between Bassam and I. And when we finished talking, he spoke up and he addressed Bassam. And he said, my best friend was gay. He was Muslim, and he committed suicide. And at this point, Mahmoud burst into tears. And he said, I did everything I could to save him, but I couldn't. And he told us this story of how this young Muslim man couldn't live with being Muslim and being gay and felt that the only option he had was to die by suicide. We were all crying in the mosque, I think, by that point. And we were all mourning for this young Muslim man that we'd never met and now that we would never get the chance to meet. 
You know, when I left religious education at 16, I swore that I was done with religion and I was never going back to it. And I was never going to have another conversation that I couldn't help with another person of faith again. When I was in that mosque that day, and I was there to learn about American values, and I ended up getting schooled on my own culture by a Muslim. Because what I realized was that I couldn't run away from religion anymore. Within the LGBT community, we have a saying that we tell people. We tell them, it gets better. And what I realized that day was that it gets better for some of us. It gets better for those of us who live long enough to see it get better. I realized that I couldn't run away from religion anymore because religion shapes how LGBT people are treated in the world. It shapes the laws and how they treat LGBT people, which we can see from the lack of equal marriage in this country. And it shapes how we LGBT people feel about ourselves. The first lesson I learned about being gay was that it was evil and that I was going to hell for it. And I learned that from the Bible. There were times that I would cry in my bedroom as a teenager, bargaining with God, asking him not to send me to hell because I was so convinced that I was going there. You know, this text, this Bible, I know for so many people it, it offers them hope and it offers them salvation. But for me, it offered a prison sentence. And I think it's the same for a lot of other LGBT young people. LGBT suicide rates are through the roof. What do we do about this? I feel the only answer is to change religious teaching of homosexuality and LGBT issues. And I don't mean we berate Christians and shout at them or berate Muslims and shout at them. We need to do the one thing that I didn't want to do when I left at school at 16. We need to have conversations, difficult conversations, and fight for the hearts and minds of those who oppose us. I've studied this, and when you ask people like Megan Phelps Roper, who was one of, a member of the Westboro Baptist Church, a hate group in America, when you ask people like this, when you ask former neo-Nazis, the most extreme people, when you ask them what changed your mind, what made you abandon your views, they all tell you the same thing. It was a conversation. Someone who they were opposed to struck up a conversation, and they learned that that person was not who they thought they were, and they got to a point where they could no longer hold those views. People tell me this isn't going to happen. There is no way the churches will change their teaching or the mosques will change their teachings. You're mad. And I would have agreed with them. But six weeks ago, I was out in a gay bar, not this one, with my friend, Jordan. He was a free, from a free Presbyterian DUP voting family in County Legendary. Avoid that Londonderry Derry thing, I hate that. Um, and we were out there with his mum, who is a Scottish free P who goes to church every Sunday. And she was out in this bar supporting her gay son, just like Brenda Marquez McCool was out in Pulse that night supporting her gay son. Don't tell me there's no hope, because for too many LGBT young people, that is the only thing they have that keeps them living. And by the way, that free Presbyterian mother went into work the next day and told everyone about this amazing thing she'd been to called a drag show. <laughs> now, if you had told me that I'd be sitting in a gay bar with one of Ian Paisley's disciples, drinking cocktails and watching a drag show, I'd have told you you were mad. So, what can you do if you thought you were here to listen passively to me rant on? No, I've got a job for you all. 
If any of you are uncomfortable with the thought of someone like me, please come up to me after this event and talk to me. I won't bite your head off. I won't call you a homophobe. We'll just have a conversation and I'll show you that I'm human just like you. If you are comfortable with the thought of someone like me, have a conversation with someone who isn't and try to change their mind because you could be saving a life. Finally, I'd like to send a message to all LGBT young people who are currently struggling, especially those from faith backgrounds. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Jeremiah 29.11. This talk is in memory of the Pulse 49 and all LGBT people who died by suicide. Thank you very much, folks. also think it's important that the court took these cases together because they're all really a variation on the same theme. Mm -hmm. And that theme is what is sex stereotyping and what does it mean when an employer uses sex stereotypes in order to um, have some sort of adverse employment action against their employee. So let's talk about this a little bit. Let's break this down. The Supreme Court is going to consider the scope of its ruling in a case called Pricewaterhouse versus Hopkins as that case applies to sex stereotyping. So let's talk about what Pricewaterhouse was all about. This is a big case, and it's right there in the center of it. Huge case, like landmark case. Mm-hmm. So Pricewaterhouse versus Hopkins involved a plaintiff, a woman by the name of Ann Hopkins, who said that she'd been denied a promotion at work because she was, quote-unquote, too macho. Her employer told her that she should wear makeup, she should style her hair, and she should act more feminine. I mean, really, it's the smile more, right? It's the smile more. Yeah, exactly. Like, smile more, and then maybe we can give you a promotion at work, you lady, and your, with your lady brain. <laughs> <laughs> so... The court agreed that such comments were indicative of gender discrimination and held mm-hmm. that Title VII bars discrimination because of biological sex, but also bars gender stereotyping. And that's discrimination based on someone failing to act and appear according to societal expectations defined by gender. These are heteronormative societal mm-hmm. expectations about gender and what it looks like to be a man or a woman. So I want to emphasize the phrase discrimination based on someone failing to act and appear according to societal expectations because what is it to be trans or to be gay if not a quote-unquote failure to act and appear according to societal expectations that are defined by your gender, right? I mean... Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, again, it seems so common sense to say that sex discrimination includes discrimination based on presumptions tied to how people should act according to your gender presumptions, right? Like, all of that is just... I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, but here we are. Here we are. And here we are with, you know, with uh, with the lawyers on the other side, people like ADF and their cohorts arguing that somehow sex stereotyping is not involved when it comes to sexual orientation or transgender people. But but that's nonsense. I mean, all you have to do is just apply a little bit of common sense. Right. So one of the stereotypes that is specific to men is that they should be partnered only with women. Right. Right. One of the stereotypes specific to women is that they should be partnered only with men, right? Following. Yep, I'm tracking. <laughs> all right, it's all tracked. So refusing to hire a man or a woman because they are partnered with someone of the same sex 
and therefore not adhering to the prevailing stereotype that you should be, you, a man should be with a woman or you, a woman should be with a man. That is precisely discrimination because of sex. How am I wrong? Explain it to me like I'm five. Thank you for coming to our TED shout. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Our TED shout. So, you know, Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins. Uh This landmark Supreme Court case, 1986 case, bars adverse employment decisions based on sex stereotyping. It should therefore bar employers from firing gay employees because they're gay or firing trans employees because they're trans. This just this isn't even a question to me. It makes perfect sense. It does. And I mean, we actually we've talked about this on the show before. We did a preview episode of these cases and really like dove deep into Title seven and some of these arguments. So, you know, I encourage folks to go back there and also, you know, we need to be tracking these arguments along with, you know, sort of the position that the Trump administration has taken both in terms of granting the cases and then also what it's going to do when we're actually in argument stage. Because, you know, when these were, when the court was considering them, the administration said, hold Harris funeral homes, right? Hold the trans case until you decide the issue of sexual orientation. But the court rejected that. And I think that shows, like you said, that they are thinking about this as all part of the same narrative theme. Right. Right. And that they're not interested in taking any kind of piecemeal approach or doing step by step analysis on the scope of employment protections first for LGBT employees and then for trans employees. Right. Absolutely. Okay, Imani. So we know what's on the line with these cases, but what's really going on with these cases? Ah, question for the ages. What is going on with these cases? Well, these cases are absolutely about trying to grant employers the right to fire someone for being gay or trans. Full stop. Right. Mm hmm. But they are also about getting a bad definition of, quote, sex-based discrimination so that it can be applied in broader contexts like fair housing cases and healthcare. If LGBTQ people are not protected in the context of one civil rights law, like Title VII, it is easier for conservatives to argue that they're not protected in other civil rights laws, like the Fair Housing Act or Title IX, which is often judged by the same standards that are applied to Title VII. Right. And we know, absolutely, we know that this uh, attack is happening in parallel fronts because we have, for example, the Trump administration in the process of attacking Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. That's the provision that prohibits gender-based discrimination in healthcare and has been really revolutionary in helping um, trans folks access the care they need. And we're waiting for the administration to literally any day now drop a new rule on this. And guess what? Our friend, Raj Severino, over at the Department of Health and Human Services, we have a podcast episode about him, too, about good old Raj. He's leading this effort uh, to legally define gender as either male or female based on the genitalia a person is born with. That kind of rulemaking, should it get in place, would remove federal recognition and protections under existing civil rights law for more than one million transgender Americans. I have several things to say. (laughs) First of all, what the hell? You can't just define out of existence. Right, exactly. You can't erase an entire category of people by just changing the definitions of words. Like, changing the definitions of words isn't going to make transgender people not exist. That's absurd. These fools are trying, though. These fools are trying. They really are. Second of all, what about intersex people? Mm-hmm. Are we just, I mean, there's a, there's very few conversation about what this means for intersex people. So that's another problem that I have with this fucking nonsense. And then finally, 
I guess just a general what the fuck is in order here because <laughs> just, you know, just a broad based what the fuck is, is in order here. That's our standing what the fuck. Exactly. <laughs> just an evergreen what the fuck because, you know, it's hard enough right now for LGBTQ people to just live, exist. You know, they can't have cakes baked for them. They can, they, they're probably going to be able to get fired, you know, at the workplace if the court rules the way I expect them to. And we can talk about that a little bit later. And, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people have been sort of resting on their lawyer, on, the, resting on, on their, their lawyers. lawyers. <laughs> if Never only. rest on your lawyers. We're not comfortable at all. No. <laughs> usually sweaty. <laughs> usually sweaty, clammy, and just like a bit jittery. So you don't want that. What I meant to say is that a lot of folks are resting on their laurels because, hey, we've got same-sex marriage now. And isn't right. that great? That means we can move on. People have really forgotten that there are whole other categories of the law that do not have protection for LGBTQ people. And the Trump administration is coming for that. And that is really concerning. With a smattering of bipartisan support, the Democratic majority in the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Equality Act on May 17th to protect LGBTQ people from discrimination under federal law. It would bar bias based on sexual orientation or gender identity or expression in employment, housing, loan applications, education, and public accommodations. Longtime queer rights supporter House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said it would bring the U.S closer to equal liberty and justice for all. The vote in the House was 236 to 173. Eight Republicans joined the majority. Seven Democrats and 16 Republicans did not vote on the measure. Contrary to prevailing belief in the U.S., LGBTQ people are not already protected by federal law. However, Several courts have decided that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that bans discrimination on account of sex also extends to sexual orientation and gender identity. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear three cases that will test those rulings in the session that begins in October. Close to half of all U.S. citizens currently live in states that have no anti-bias laws protecting queer people. Out Congressman David Cicilline of Rhode Island is one of the Equality Act's lead sponsors. He said that passage would ensure that all members of the LGBTQ community can live their lives free from the fear of legal discrimination of any kind. Recent polling demonstrates that as many as 7 in 10 people in the U.S. support anti-discrimination laws for LGBTQ people. Still, Republicans argue that the bill is a threat to religious freedom by requiring the acceptance of a specific ideology about sexuality and gender. Religious conservatives are howling that the measure will promote federal persecution of Christians. Televangelist Pat Robertson warned that passage will make God angry at Americans and the land will vomit you out. Brian Fisher of the certifiably anti-queer hate group, the American Family Association, ranted against the measure on his daily radio show, calling it the Pedophile Protection Act. A similar bill in the Republican-controlled Senate faces an uncertain future. At best, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has the power to not even allow consideration of the Equality Act in his chamber. And President Trump has signaled that he'll veto the measure in its present form in the unlikely event it reaches his desk.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, demand the Senate pass the Equality Act and protect trans health rights. This Pride Month also celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, and while Pride is a celebratory time, it continues to be the protest it always was as the Trump administration attacks the rights of the LGBTQ community on multiple fronts. There was a bright spot in May when the Equality Act passed the House with bipartisan support. Currently, anti-discrimination protections for the LGBTQ community have to be fought for state by state, but 30 states still lack full protection for LGBTQ people. The Equality Act would expand current federal civil rights law to protect LGBTQ people from discrimination in the workplace, in housing, in the classroom, in public accommodations, retail stores, transportation, and more. You can help fight to advance and pass this legislation in the Senate, where it has 46 co-sponsors, in addition to Senator Jeff Merkley, who introduced it. The only Republican on that list right now is Susan Collins, while the rest are crying religious liberty, of course, and have a sudden concern for women's sports, both of which obviously would not be impacted by this act. Call your members of Congress today and keep the pressure on by sharing your stories through letters, tweets, and letters to the editor, and by educating your friends and family on the Equality Act so they can fight for it too. At the same time as the Equality Act is moving through Congress, trans people are still fighting for basic health care rights. The Trump administration is undermining the ACA's health care rights law, which protects people accessing health care from discrimination by providers or insurers. This law is essential for transgender people as they face dangerous healthcare discrimination on a regular basis. From being ignored in the examination room to ridicule and lack of care after calling for an ambulance. To play to their base, Trump and Pence have had the Department of Health and Human Services propose a regulation that says discrimination against transgender people is legal in the name of religious liberty. Specifically, the regulation claims that gender or gender identity should not be covered under discrimination based on sex. The problem is that they can't change existing law that easily, so the new regulation only acts to confuse patients, providers, and insurers, and puts the health of transgender people in jeopardy. The public comment period for this proposed regulation is open now through August 13th. The Transgender Law Center and the National Center for Transgender Equality have made it easy to make your comment. Go to protecttranshealth.org for more information, commenting tips, and a form to easily submit your comment. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if protecting your family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, and or even yourself from bigoted discrimination is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about demanding the Senate pass the Equality Act and protect trans health rights via social media so so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Minister Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, all of this stuff is all part of the same kind of soup in my mind. Your thoughts on how this all 
on how the firing of Chaplain Conroy reflects a, a an essentially a moral rot in our country that is that is being yeah. presented by by the uh, so-called conservative movement. Well, you know, I'm someone who was raised to think I was white in the Southern Baptist Church, and part of my deep concern is the way my people have been sold a lie by religious leaders who are really uh, funded and backed by the extremists who have taken over the Republican Party in this country. And so um, one example of that is the way they currently try to use religious freedom as an issue uh, to rally support from uh, white evangelicals. Well, here's an example of a direct affront to religious freedom. I mean, if a if a priest can't pray the scriptures uh, on the floor of the house, then there you know there's there's really little sense pretending that anyone wants a chaplain. And yet, uh, what what he did was uh, nothing more than what the prophets say, nothing more than what Jesus says, nothing more than what um, really most of the prophetic voices in the history of this country have said. Um, but for that, he you know was forced to resign. So I think what this is doing is exposing the real hypocrisy of a, again, a, a well-funded effort to, uh, to, to leverage the uh, white evangelical community as a political base uh, with really very little concern for the religion or, or what the demands of that religion are. Yeah, it, it certainly seems that way. Do- Dr. Barber, I was also uh, reading earlier from Henry Wallace, the vice president of the United States in 1944, who talked about American fascists and how they would basically, um, the, the, in fact, here's the uh, specific quote, um, and he was talking about basically the industrialists, and he said, uh, uh, they claim to be super patriots, but they would destroy every liberty guaranteed by the Constitution. They demand free enterprise, but are the spokesman for monopoly invested interest. Their final objective toward, and this is 1944, their final objective toward which uh, all their deceit is directed is to capture political power so that using the power of the state and the power of the market simultaneously, they may keep the common man in eternal subjection. Um, the, the churches, at least the largely white evangelical churches, seem to be playing a role in this, uh, Reverend Barber. Yeah, and that's a complicated statement, even when we say white evangelical. Jonathan is a white evangelical. I'm an evangelical. They have hijacked that term. So what you have is an extreme group who have engaged in heresy and theological malpractice. Actually, evangelicalism in the scriptures begins with a deep concern for the poor. Jesus' first sermon was, he's come to preach good news, that's evangel, to the poor. The reality is, in the American construct, you could not have that kind of gospel preached and then have slavery. And so there's been years and years to hijack religious uh, true religious tenets around love and justice and mercy, and, and instead use religion in the service of oppression and slavery. And we know even now, uh, this has been plotted and planned for years. The Southern strategy was designed uh, to pit poor and working-class white people against poor and working-class black people and brown people because of the fear of the white aristocracy, as Dr. King once said, of black, white, brown unity and voting power. Uh, And we know that white nationalism is not just hate against black people. White nationalism is a hate for democracy. But it's also used by the the powers that be to, to create a system that they can play the division so they can divide up the wealth. 
That's really what's going on, which is why we are having this Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, organizing 40 days of action that begin after Mother's Day. And we're bringing people together from Alabama to eastern Kentucky. You know, I've recently been in Alabama where black families are, are living with sewage in their backyard where children and grandchildren play. But I've also been in eastern Kentucky where white women in the mountains there, the wives of coal miners and others, are joining this movement simultaneously to say, if we in the, this country, we must address systemic racism, systemic poverty, uh, ecological devastation, the war economy, militarism, and the false distorted moral narrative of, of, of religious and Christian nationalism if we're going to really uh, uh, move this democracy forward and save it from, from failure. Yeah. And, and Reverend uh, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, I, you know, during the Obama years, I was thinking, Wow, you know, the, 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 uh, the institutions of white supremacy are being taken down, are being, uh, challenged. Uh, the white people are waking up. Uh, you know, a lot of white people voted for Obama. Um, and now with Trump in place, it's almost like, you know, the, the, the white voters said, you know, we're going to prove that the, that the, uh, that the worst white guy, uh, you know, a, a pathetic misogynist <laughs> business failure, uh, is, is, uh, more important is superior to the best black guy, Barack Obama. You know, a Rhodes or a uh, excuse me, a, uh, a scholar, uh, a, uh, a Harvard Law Review, the whole bit. And uh, you know, what what's your sense uh, as a white guy? You know, what's your sense of the white community's response to this? Are we backsliding, or are we just waking up to a cancer in our midst that we that, that many of us were largely unaware of? We got about a minute here before we're going to hit a break. Uh, uh, Pastor. Yeah, no, it's it's a good question, and uh, I think it's important to to emphasize that uh, white evangelicals have been deceived. Um, I, I've been talking to lots of folks in Baptist churches in the South and evangelical churches across the country, and uh, and what they, you know, people are at pains to say that that you know they're not supporting Trump because of their racism, uh, but but what the Southern strategy that Reverend Barber was talking about was all about. Was, was taking racial animus and giving it new language. So pushing back against liberalism, saying that progressives are atheists, has been the language that has been stirred up by not, not only the Christian right politicos, but also by Christian TV, Christian radio. I mean, there, there's a constant narrative of, um, of, of being under assault, and the Obama administration was framed as uh, as a sort of great example of that assault. And so uh, this, this backlash is very much in keeping with um, what we've seen in the past, and yet they've tried to take the racial language off of it. We've just heard clips today, starting with The Intercept, warning of the rise of the Christian Taliban. Boom Lawyer discussed the conservative strategy of claiming reverse discrimination for not being allowed to discriminate. Tom Hartman argued that prominent Christian conservatives are anything but Christ-like in their discrimination. The Majority Report explained the problem with Mike Pence describing how hard it is to be Christian today. This Way Out featured a speech from Lyra McKee about the importance of speaking to those who who dehumanize. 
Boom lawyered laid out the legal argument that should easily dispense with the conservative claim of reverse discrimination if we were living in normal times. This Way Out reported on the passage of the Equality Act in the U.S. House of Representatives. Our activism for today was in support of the Equality Act and trans health rights. And finally, we just heard Tom Hartman speaking with Dr. Reverend Barber and Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove about the rise of Christian nationalism. Members this week will hear some additional material on the Supreme Court cases that will be decided next year dealing with the fundamental questions of equality for all versus the right to discriminate. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Corey again. I called uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about my depression and how your episode helped me consider how my generation is helping each other get through a really tough time. And um, your episode on the philanthropy, people trying to do good and seeming to do good. And it's not just from this. I've felt it from a lot of angles lately. I'm in less of a depression and more of an anxiety. And um, I just feel so unsecure that we're heading in the right direction because some things just seem so awful and they seem to be still going in that direction. So it's just nice to have... um, some affirmation that to, to feel like we're on the right side of history but what's disheartening is the time it feels like it will take uh thanks for your show it helps me through a lot thanks again bye hi jay this is heather i just finished your episode where you explain the prisoner's dilemma and that was the best way i've ever heard it explained like i really got it this time and i'm thinking maybe that's the best way for the left to start framing all of our arguments in if you're not arguing in good faith or if you're not having everything laid out on the table as to your goals and the expected outcome if we frame the right not following those rules we can we can start arguing that they're trying to hide something because their goals aren't actually aligned with anybody on the left and we can start working offensively rather than defensively and so like the democratic debate was this weekend and i see how kamala harris is so much better than anybody else and bernie gets a lot of criticism for not arguing for minorities or the LGBT community and his goal is basically you know a rising tide lifts all boats but a lot of people are looking at Kamala and saying yes but now we have a woman of color and they're going for the easier the easier identity politics with her rather than Bernie's actual core policies and belief system that is not as moderate as hers. If we really want a revolution, we have to go to Bernie and we have to start arguing the prisoner's dilemma thing, I guess, is my argument. I don't know. I'm not, I haven't fully thought it through yet, but thanks. Bye. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, let's see if we can untangle what Heather was talking about. No offense intended. I'm certainly not making fun. She did sort of admit herself there at the end that uh, maybe she didn't think her uh, her point all the way through, but I'm going to see if I can intuit a bit where she was headed. So the prisoner's dilemma, as was discussed previously, is all about trying to predict the actions of someone else and correlate your actions in such a way that you get the best outcome for yourself, but your actions and the other person's actions are contingent on each other. And so it ends up being a bit of a mind game where people will ultimately end up making the wrong decision, the decision that does not benefit them the most, possibly because they either are considering or are not considering what the other person is likely to do. So when you translate that to the election... I think it is not the prisoner's dilemma as I was describing previously, uh, you know, about whether or not you choose to uh, boycott Amazon or shop there. It, it's it's uh, it takes on a slightly different dynamic, and I think it's almost the opposite. And that what happens in primary elections is that people treat it like a prisoner's dilemma when they shouldn't. It actually isn't a prisoner's dilemma. But people think that it is. And so they start making decisions and strategizing and and deciding who to vote for themselves based on what they think other people are going to do. Basically, everyone becomes their own pundit. Everyone becomes a horse race expert. And then they start predicting, well, you know, maybe my first choice would be X, but, you know, no one's going to support that person in the in the general election. So I'm not going to vote for my first choice. And instead, I'll support this milk toast middle of the road person who may have a better chance of winning in the general that's what people start doing a lot. I'm not sure if this is where Heather was headed, but anyway, this is where I'm headed. The idea is that that people, rather than doing, I mean, you could call it the selfish thing, voting for the person who you believe in the most, but instead trying to align your own vote with what you think other people will be in support of, is this level of like three-dimensional primary election chess that no one should be playing. You know, back in 2007, these are the people who would have voted for John Edwards, thinking like, well, I mean, sure, I like Obama more, but no one's ever going to elect a black guy, so we got to go for the milk toast white dude. At least he's talking about income inequality, but, you know, he's super white, and look at that nice haircut he has. That's the kind of a guy who could get elected. That's the sort of thinking that leads you down a bad, mediocre path that, that you know, ultimately doesn't get, get you what you want, even if you get what you want. So, uh, as I said, I don't know if this is what Heather was saying, but, but the idea that people are voting for candidates, as she was saying, like, go the easy identity politics route instead of the 
actually good policy route. I think I think what she's referring to is because you know things have changed a lot in ten years, and so now maybe the person who thought John Edwards could win because he's a nice looking white guy might think. Kamala Harris could win because the the country is ready, especially after Trump, for a woman of color. And it almost doesn't matter what her policies are because she's a woman of color. And look how excited people would be about that. And so that's who we should vote for. And, you know, I, I, I see the instinct. I understand the instinct. And we've actually had in-depth conversations about the relationship between identity uh, politics and real-life consequences and the benefits of that. And and so we talked about weighing the benefits of a politician's policies versus the benefits of the identity, you know, the the, per, the person being elected being of a minority or oppressed identity, and there are genuine benefits to that. So, you know, that, that's it's certainly not to dismiss the idea that Kamala Harris is a woman of color and that should be ignored. That's not what I'm saying, but. The idea that people should vote either based on that entirely or on, well, we think people would be excited about her. So even if she's not my first choice, she'll she's who I would vote for because I think other people would vote for her. That's how we get to a place of mediocrity where the policies that we need don't end up being implemented because we elect people who are middle of the road when what we need is something far more progressive than that. And uh, the the idea that more progressive means less electable is a fallacy. But it's a fallacy that people have internalized so much that they become afraid of voting for the policies they want, thinking that no one else wants them. When it turns out, you look at the polling and see what policies people actually like and what they want, extremely progressive policies poll extremely well. So the idea that someone espousing extremely progressive policies couldn't possibly be elected is total nonsense. So who knows if that's what Heather was trying to say, but uh, it gave me an opportunity to say it anyway. And secondly, I just want to chime in on Corey's comment and just let him and everyone else know, because sometimes it feels good. It's a little bit of a misery loves company sort of thing, but uh, it's good to know, I think. It's helpful to know when you're feeling down or anxious or like we're going in the wrong direction. We are all feeling that way. Corey and anyone else having those feelings, you are not alone. We all feel extremely anxious right now. Probably different people to different degrees, maybe depending on your personal threat assessment level, (laughs) you know, some people are more on the front lines of the dangers we are facing than others, for instance. Like, I, you know, say we go all the way down the path into a, you know, fascist state, like, I could pass for a while as, you know, as as a good German. You know, we're probably not forever, but like for a while, I'd be okay. Other people are on the front lines and have a lot more to be concerned about. But just so you guys know, we have been feeling the direct effects of people's anxiety and concerns about our current state in the state of uh, our society right now. Many listeners have dropped off the show. 
so there, there's this old saying, I think I've said it on the show before, but it's, it's this old idea. It's a just funny phrase from the Nation magazine. It says, what's bad for the country is good for the nation. And what it means is when conservatives are in power, more people buy the Nation magazine to get their progressive news and politics. And that, that's been true for, you know, 100 years or however long that magazine's been around. And the Trump administration is a different beast. It was done by strategy, absolutely. They have tried to implement so many things, like Steve Bannon said that this was their strategy. They tried to hit us with so many policies. They tried to oppress so many people so quickly that the left is completely scatterbrained. We don't know what to focus on. There is too much to focus on, and we feel completely overwhelmed. And instead of people being more engaged, as that as has been the case in the past, when conservatives are, are in power, the left becomes more engaged and fights back harder. You know, think of the anti-war movement under uh, under Bush. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people rallying in Washington, D.C. against the war. That's what it looks like when the left is highly engaged. And under the Trump administration, we're completely scattershot. You know, we, we are either tuning out for the sake of our own mental health, which is what many people have done. I've heard from listeners who have said that they have either taken temporary or permanent sort of leaves of absence <laughs> from listening to the show. I've heard from people who say, Oh, you do that show? I used to listen to that show, but I just can't anymore because things are too bad. Today, I was sitting in a coffee shop preparing this episode, and I overheard a woman, first of all, describing the house that she had just had built by an architect, just giving a sense of her you know, economic status, talking to her friends, talking about their, their lovely new homes. And then she followed up immediately with, Oh, yeah, and I've canceled my subscription to the New York Times because I just can't read about that man before I go to bed every night. So all of this is to say that anyone feeling bad about our current situation or the direction we are headed in, you are not alone. There is a lot of anxiety, a lot of people pulling back, a little bit of head in the sand action going on, and and a lot of people paying attention, but just feeling really terrible about it. And I can't say too much incredibly encouraging. I don't think that things are going to be like this forever. I think that the fight against what is happening is relatively strong. Uh, the 2018 election gave me hope for sure. The 2020 election, as it's shaping up, is on far more progressive platforms than anyone could have expected pre-2016 uh, and, and Bernie's run that, that really created the new platform that everyone is fighting for. And we know for sure Trump is not going to be in office forever. And uh, the Republican Party seems to be tearing itself to shreds, but it's not going to happen by itself. I mean, we all have to stay engaged. We have to stay active. We have to actually fight the fight. We can't just wait for the fight to be over so we can start feeling better. But it's all just to say, we are all actually in this together. We don't have these feelings of anxiety and trepidation about the current state of affairs and the future alone. 
you, you may think you're experiencing it alone. That may be how you actually experience your day-to-day emotions, but know that you are one of millions of people having those sorts of feelings. And really, the, the most encouraging thing I can say is that the best way to fight that feeling is to get engaged and to engage with other people who have similar feelings and don't know what else to do but to fight back, to get involved with an organization or a movement or a campaign or something that makes you feel and and so that you know you are doing something. It doesn't just feel good to do something. It also feels good to surround yourself with people who are doing that same sort of thing. And so that really is my top piece of advice. The worse you feel, the more you should lean into it and work on doing something about it. Sticking one's head in the sand, unsubscribing from the New York Times, trying to ignore the news, that does not make people feel better. You may need to take breaks from time to time. That is absolutely part of a mental health self-help regimen, completely understood. But disengaging is disempowering. And the source of so much of our anxiety right now is the feeling of being disempowered. So the way to take back one's power is to actually get engaged and try to do something. If you have thoughts on this or anything else, if you'd like to comment on the recent Democratic primary debate, if you have any stories about how you've been engaged and how it's made you feel, or anything like that, or anything else you can think of, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Just one quick reminder before I go that Babbel is the language learning app designed to get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. Babbel's interactive lessons are created by over 100 language experts in 14 languages and last only 10 to 15 minutes. Go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it for free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.